Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm your host, Chad Bown, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This episode is about trade disputes, the World Trade Organization, and poorer and smaller countries. The WTO has worked hard to create an equitable legal system that is not stacked against the interests of poor countries. Yet today, that equitable legal system may now be under threat. To learn about all this, we're going to speak with Niall Marr. Niall is a trade lawyer, currently the executive director of the Advisory Center on WTO Law in Geneva, and a friend of the show. Hi, Niall. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. To motivate this episode, I want to remind everyone of the world trading system that existed before Donald Trump came along in 2017. That world was highlighted by the WTO. The WTO had been negotiated to conclusion, including by the United States, so that in 1995, it would replace the old power-based trading system, the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Under the GATT, many thought that big countries like the United States sometimes bullied littler countries when things weren't going their way. The WTO, in theory, fixed part of that problem. If someone breaks the rules, you're supposed to be able to sue them in the WTO's courts. For those rules to work, though, they have to be enforceable. And there, a different problem can emerge because WTO enforcement can be expensive. Suing another country involves prosecuting and winning a complicated legal dispute that takes a long time and involves lots of very expensive lawyers charging for loads and loads of billable hours. In richer countries, the exporting companies are often willing to bear the costs of that behind-the-scenes legal work. Places like the United States and the European Union also have teams of government lawyers at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, or DG Trade, lawyers that are always seemingly willing and able to bring these cases forward at the government's expense. The story in developing countries is just different. There aren't as many trade lawyers kicking around, and oftentimes the companies doing the exporting aren't making enough money to afford the expensive Western private law firms to do the work on their behalf. But if developing countries can't afford to enforce the rules, no one else is going to do it for them. There are no attorneys general or independent prosecutors in the WTO system. So you can see the potential worries about enforcement. Anticipating all this, relatively early into the history of the WTO, countries set up a clever little thing to help deal with this potential problem. That clever little thing is called the Advisory Center on WTO Law. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Okay, Niall, let's set the scene. Was publicly funded legal assistance available to poorer countries under the old GATT system in in the 1980s or when the WTO was first beginning in the 90s? No, not at all, Chad. In fact, when the WTO was created in 1995, legal aid was virtually unknown in international law. But the creation of the WTO changed two things. First of all, for the first time, there was a binding system of dispute settlement from which WTO members could not opt out. Secondly, there were just a lot more rules to be followed, covering areas such as trade and services that hadn't been covered before. So a decision was taken to sort of spin off a small little organization as a kind of a little sister or cousin of the WTO that would be focused entirely on remedying this capacity deficit 
of providing legal aid to developing and least developed countries. And that's what became the advisory center on WTO law. Timing-wise, the, the WTO begins in 1995, and at that stage, the advisory center, its little sister or cousin, wasn't yet born. Right after the WTO went into effect, what was the experience of the dispute settlement system and, I suppose, the response of developing countries? Well, it was an immediate success, and there were immediately quite a lot of disputes, but usually between the larger developed countries such as the U.S. and the European Union or European community, as it was then, for the most part, as developing countries watched this, they became a little intimidated. They saw that this system was up and running very effectively and felt that they just could not participate. And as you said, they didn't really have the resources to bring in the expensive Western law firms that did have the capacity. So developing countries are worried they can't enforce their trading interests in this super exciting new dispute settlement system that that all the big kids are using. The cost of a ticket, these expensive lawyers, was just too much. So what happened then in Geneva? What did the WTO community do about this concern that developing countries lacked the legal capacity needed to get the most out of this new trading system? There were many discussions in Geneva about what to do about it. These were led on the developing country side, primarily by the representatives of the government of Colombia at the time. And because this credibility of the system was something that affected both developing countries and developed countries, there were several developed countries that joined in the effort, led at the time primarily by the government of the Netherlands. And so they came up with this idea to create a spin-off intergovernmental international organization which was finally established at the famous Seattle Ministerial Conference in 1999, which, as you will recall, was mostly about the protests that took place in Seattle. The WTO's latest ministerial conference just took place in Geneva in June. That was MC12. The Seattle ministerial you referenced, I think that was MC3, the, the third ministerial conference. And that, by all accounts, was a complete disaster. There were massive street protests, looting. They had to shut down the, the, the meeting early. This was a big black eye for the WTO at the time, though exciting for the public, I suppose. Hollywood even, even made a, a movie about it called The Battle in Seattle. But the one hugely positive legacy of that ministerial was the agreement to start the advisory center. An underappreciated nugget of, of WTO history, even out of bad, comes something good. Another interesting thing you said there that I don't want to gloss over is that the Advisory Center is an intergovernmental international organization. So it kind of has the same legal status as the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO itself, even though probably by and large, most folks have, have never heard of it. Tell us a bit more about, about the Advisory Center. When it finally did get up and running, how was it set up? How did countries get involved? How big is it? After the Seattle Ministerial Conference in 1999, it took two further years to actually set the ACWL up. And in that time, a number of developing countries joined as members, which because it is an intergovernmental organization, they have to affirmatively become members. 
However, the least developed countries that are members of the WTO or joining the WTO are automatically entitled to the services of the ACWL. So we now have 39 developing countries that have become members and 43 least developed countries that are automatically entitled to the services. So that's a total of 82 governments that can use our services, and that represents just over half of the membership of the WTO. The original projections in 2001 was that there would be fairly limited demand for this organization and that it would have a staff of about three to five lawyers. We're currently 12 lawyers working full-time on WTO law and WTO disputes, and so that in itself tells you that the demand has far exceeded the original predictions. Lawyers generally have good outside options, and Geneva is an expensive city to live in, so I assume your staff doesn't work for free. At the same time, in legal work, there's all sorts of of potential concerns about balancing transparency and, and, and other conflicts of interest. How is the advisory center funded and, and how is it governed? Well, we're set up as a, as a separate international organization with a separate governance structure from the WTO. Most of our funding comes from the developed countries that were initially eager to promote this project and others that have joined since. At the moment, we have 12 developed countries that have become funding members of the organization, and they provide the bulk of the funding. We also have income from a small endowment fund, and we also have some income from the fees we charge for dispute settlement proceedings, which are, of course, heavily subsidized compared to the commercial rates charged by private law firms. This is great. I feel like I'm in a courtroom cross-examining you. So in normal times, how much was the advisory center typically being used? Well, quite a lot and, and much more, I think, than was originally anticipated. We celebrated our 20th anniversary last year. And over that period, we've been involved in just over 70 WTO dispute settlement proceedings. To put that in a little bit of context, that's 20% of all the WTO disputes during that time. Or another way of looking at the statistic is that if you were to consider the ACWL as a country, we would be the fourth most active country in WTO dispute settlement over that period behind only the European Union, the United States, and China. Litigating WTO disputes, fighting on behalf of of the economic interests of of these poor countries that might not otherwise be able to be, be part of the system is hugely important. But is litigating WTO disputes the only thing that the advisory center does? No, it's not. So these days, each year on average, we provide about 200 different legal opinions And again, here, the demand has been greater than was predicted at the start. Probably about half our work involves simply giving day-to-day legal advice to developing and least developed countries on their understanding of WTO law generally, on the legal issues that arise in the WTO negotiations, and on advising them on how to make sure that their own laws and regulations and policy decisions are, to the extent possible, WTO consistent, which, of course, is a way of avoiding WTO disputes. 
So part of the advisory center's mandate is also to try to reduce the number of disputes that ultimately end up happening at the WTO through these legal opinions and teaching developing countries how to follow the the trade rules. So essentially what's happening here is that governments in richer countries are, are paying into a system that allows good lawyers to work on behalf of these developing countries that then makes the overall WTO system more credible. Over its 20-year history, the Advisory Center has become a big and balanced part of the success of a stable, rules-based, and equitable trading system. Let's turn now to some of the actual disputes that the Advisory Center has worked on. I know you can't break attorney-client privilege and things like that, but are there any WTO disputes that the Advisory Center has litigated that our listeners may have actually heard about? One that probably garnered a lot more media attention than others was a case brought by several developing countries that challenged Australia's plain packaging requirements for cigarettes. For anybody who who didn't read this on, on page B3 of the New York Times, the basics of this one was that in, in the early 2010s, Australia implemented some new public health policies on cigarette packaging. Their idea was to try to force tobacco companies to not be able to advertise in, in all sorts of fancy ways when, when selling their cigarettes. So no Marlboro Man, no, no Joe Cool Camel. And instead, to deal with the public health problems associated with tobacco, companies were told they couldn't advertise and, and try to, to try to differentiate their products from one another. They had to just put their cigarettes into plain packages, right? So that's why it's referred to as the plain packaging case. So that's the backstory. And as I recall, a really eclectic group of four or five different developing countries brought this dispute against Australia. I think maybe Ukraine, Indonesia, Cuba, Dominican Republic, maybe Honduras were, were some of those. What was the role of the advisory center in, in working on a case like that? Well, we represented the governments of the Dominican Republic and Honduras. In every WTO dispute, there's a private industry that's actually doing the trading, that's the stakeholder in the dispute. In many of our disputes, the, the government takes charge of defending the interests of the private stakeholder, and that's where we come in. In the more prominent cases, like the plain packaging case, the governments are still the complainants in the dispute, but they realize that their interests might not be exactly the same as the interests of the private stakeholders. So in those cases, they may come to us as co-counsel to ensure that the government policy interest is fully represented or fully defended in the statements they make to the WTO. And in this case, you've got these big multinational tobacco companies operating all around the world that are obviously very, very interested in pursuing this issue. They want to be able to advertise to increase their sales of cigarettes in the Australian market, but under the WTO, they need to convince a country, a government, to bring this dispute on their behalf. So they convinced Cuba, Indonesia, Honduras, Dominican Republic, other countries to actually bring the case forward. But the concern from your client, the the government's perspective, is that the private sector isn't always necessarily pursuing the country's overall interests in in a case like this. 
is the government may also be legitimately concerned for what a WTO legal decision might mean for its own public health policies to, to say, deal with cigarettes. So is what Honduras and the Dominican Republic governments were, were asking of the advisory center here, is that normal? Does this come up in other cases as well? Yes, it does. We we see this all the time. In in the cigarettes case, you know, the trade ministry, which might be promoting the dispute, for example, has to also discuss it with, for example, the health ministry, and that they have to ensure that the government is taking a coherent position across these issues. We see this all the time on more technical issues, such as anti-dumping. An exporter might push the government to bring a WTO case about an anti-dumping duty, and the government might be reluctant because the government, when it imposes anti-dumping duties itself, may be following a similar practice to what it, its exporter wants it to complain about. And so the government will look to us as a source of sober, balanced legal advice on where the the law really stands and the WTO rules on these things. Now, I, I think I know the answer to this one, but, but just to get it on the record, did you win the plain packaging dispute against Australia? No, as as any of your listeners that are smokers will probably be aware, the complainants lost that. And since then, many countries have uh, introduced very similar measures to the Australian measure. Yeah. In my recollection, Australia won that dispute and was allowed to keep its plain packaging system for cigarettes in, in place as part of its approach to protecting public health. And not to editorialize here too much, but I guess this case also shows that just like in the in the domestic setting of legal assistance, lawyers don't always get to pick their clients, and, and that would include the advisory center. Okay, how about other cases? Given how much they import, I would have thought you'd also be working on a fair number of disputes being brought against the European Union or, or the United States. Yes, we've been asked to help in cases against both the European Union and the United States. And in fact, one ongoing dispute that's also fairly well known is the cases against the U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminium. And in those cases, we were asked to help by the government of Turkey. Those are the infamous tariffs that the Trump administration imposed on imports of steel and aluminum, allegedly to protect America's national security. At the WTO, a bunch of countries filed formal disputes against those tariffs, including the EU, Canada, China, Norway, India, Russia, and others, including Turkey, who, who asked for your help. Okay, overall, I, I did look it up, and it turns out you've been involved in maybe 10 cases against U.S. policies and maybe 12 against the EU. So of the 70-plus disputes overall that you mentioned the, the advisory center having worked on, that's less than a third. Probably fewer disputes against the United States and Europe than what folks like me might have thought. So if these sorts of David versus Goliath disputes really are not what's making up most of the advisory center's caseload, then what is your caseload mostly about? Well, a very interesting trend over the past 20 years is that while it was originally anticipated, 
we would be involved mostly in these, as you say, David versus Goliath cases. The increasing number of WTO disputes are between two developing countries. So South-South disputes rather than North-South disputes. And we're increasingly involved in cases like that, such as disputes between Guatemala and Peru or Panama and Colombia, Philippines and Thailand, Tunisia and Morocco, and those kinds of disputes. And I think those reflect the increasing involvement of more WTO members in this system and the increasing importance of that system to these smaller countries that find it a very useful way to resolve their disputes. That result, the countries want to use the WTO to enforce South-South trade flows, is I find super interesting, partly because it lines up with some of the research I had done a while back with Kara Reynolds, where we had looked at the amount of trade involved in, in these WTO cases and actually found that in a, in a fair number of them, I think it was something like 14 or 15% of, of all WTO disputes, the annual amount of exports that was being affected was under $1 million. So- 14, 15% of cases under $1 million worth of trade, quite small. And so there's there's just a tremendous number of these cases that aren't big stakes disputes that, that are involving these, these smaller developing countries and where it probably doesn't make sense to involve expensive private sector lawyers. Maybe this is small stakes from the perspective of a bigger country, but probably it's big stakes for these smaller countries' trade and, and certainly for their faith in the, in the WTO system. And that creates an important role for the advisory center. One final question about your caseload. So your members file disputes against the U.S., against the EU, and against each other. Are you seeing that advisory center countries also tend to file WTO disputes against China? Not much so far, Chad. I think so far we've been involved in only one dispute against China. Uh, I'm not sure what the reasons for that are. And I think to some extent, when our members come for legal advice on trade with China, they're usually more concerned with taking actions against Chinese imports rather than trying to challenge things that China might be doing to limit the market access of their exports. This is one of the big puzzles that I've struggled with. China is such a huge importer and it's not as if it has the reputation of adhering to WTO rules better than anyone else. And yet the only disputes that China tends to face as a defendant or, or, or as a respondent come from the major economies, like the US, the European Union, Japan. Developing countries have no problems using the WTO to challenge the policies of the US or Europe, but by and large, they're not using the WTO to challenge China. And that's a puzzle. For the most part, with the help of the advisory center, the WTO's dispute settlement system was functioning pretty well for most countries. But then the Trump administration came along in 2017. And at that point, the United States began to block the appointment of new members to the WTO's appellate body. The appellate body is the appeals court in the, in the WTO system. Until finally in December of 2019, there were just too few of those judges left in Geneva for the WTO appeals court to work and the appellate body since has been in a state of crisis. Now what can sometimes happen is, if a country doesn't like the first stage legal decision in one of these disputes, what's called the panel decision, 
the country can appeal the ruling, what's called, into the void. Because there's no functioning appellate body at the WTO to rule on it, the appeal will just sort of sit there, in limbo. The case is left hanging there legally, unresolved. As more and more time passes and there is still no functioning appellate body, this begins to create a set of problems. The first is that recognizing that this appeal into the void thing can happen, countries simply stop filing WTO disputes altogether. They say to themselves, why bother doing all the work, paying all the money to pursue a case if I can't even be guaranteed that I'll receive a legal decision? And then that leads to the second and potentially even bigger concern. Recognizing that no one is enforcing the WTO's rules any longer, governments simply stop following the rules in the first place. And so the WTO's rules-based trading system then breaks down. So that's the theory. Niall, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the potential implications of, of all that. First, do the advisory center member countries care that there's no longer a functioning appellate body? I think they do. Developing countries like the dispute settlement system. I think it will be important going forward that a binding system must include an opportunity to review the decision of the first panel. An analogy I sometimes like to use is in the world of sports, where sports are increasingly using video technology to review the decisions of the referees on the field. And of course, sports fans argue like crazy about how it should work. But by and large, sports that have introduced this kind of video refereeing may be talking about how it should work and how to improve it, but they're generally not getting rid of it once they've worked with it for a while. And that applies, I think, to having an opportunity to review a decision of a WTO panel before the losing government has to change its laws or practices to give effect to that decision. Video refereeing, what you call VAR, video assisted refereeing in soccer or European football, I guess. We call that instant replay here in the US. We're now more than two years into this new world without a functioning appellate body or, or this instant replay. On the ground, are, are you seeing implications of this play out? Have countries stopped filing new WTO disputes? No, there's still new disputes being filed, including by developing countries. But it's definitely fair to say that it, the number has declined in the last couple of years. Very hard to unpack how much that is the impact of the appellate body crisis you described or just the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And to some extent, we saw something similar in, back in 2008, 9, 10, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, when there was also a drop-off in the number of new disputes, I think both generally and also coming into our office at the time. I looked up the data, and, and before the appellate body crisis began, on average, the, the WTO received about 25 new disputes per year. This was between 1995 and 2019. But in the two and a half years since then, since the appellate body hasn't been functioning, there's only been 19 or 20 disputes total. And interestingly, about half of those involve the European Union on one side or the other. Out of everyone, uh, the EU has been the most vocal with concerns about losing binding WTO dispute settlement. 
So it's almost as if the commission and in, in DG Trade are single-handedly <laughs> trying to keep it going. As you said, there are probably a number of other reasons why we we have seen fewer disputes since the beginning of 2020. One, one is, of course, the pandemic. Another is that for, for many countries, trade has done surprisingly well. The last two years, especially here in the United States, since we've all been locked down and, and couldn't go to restaurants or buy any services, American consumers have just done nothing except purchase goods, including imported goods. And, and so we've seen them reach record levels. And when there's lots of imports, there can be less to dispute, at least on that side of the ledger. But another potentially important piece of this is, is to the extent that we have seen problematic policies over the last two years, they're often not import restrictions, but policies affecting the export side. So export restrictions. Think the, the export restrictions on personal protective equipment, so respirators or, or hospital gloves early in the pandemic, or more recently, export bans on fertilizers or, or wheat, palm oil, and, and other food products. While these policies are, are super problematic, the WTO has many fewer rules disciplining that kind of behavior in, in those types of policies. So one possibility is that it's perhaps not as ripe to be litigated in WTO dispute settlement, even if the system were functioning at full speed. Have advisory center members been coming to you and asking you about export restrictions over the last couple of years? Yes, they have. We've been asked for legal opinions, both by governments that are considering imposing export restraints themselves and others that may be concerned that about export restraints that have been imposed by other governments. And of course, our mandate is is limited to just giving legal advice about the consistency with the WTO rules of these measures. We are not allowed to use the lawyer's expression, go ambulance chasing, to recommend to governments that they bring the disputes, whether the government wants to take one of these actions to a WTO dispute is entirely a decision for the government. No ambulance chasing. And I suppose the other big challenge in these export restricting policies is, is that the big losers in the other importing countries are consumers. They can't get access to PPE, to fertilizer if you're a farmer, or, or to the, the food like wheat or palm oil. And we know from other contexts how notoriously difficult it is to politically organize consumer interest to, to get them to stand up for themselves even if someone could chase ambulances for them. The last topic I want to turn to is the recent WTO ministerial meeting. So in in June in Geneva, we had MC12, one of these meetings between all the world's trade ministers that, that happens every couple of years. They all get together, negotiate down to the wire, and try to hash out a trade deal. What's the role of the advisory center in a in a ministerial meeting like MC12? Are you there in the in the green room in the WTO secretariat building and actually part of the negotiations? No, we're not, and and I'll explain why in a second. But I will say that this year I was very glad not to be in the green room since they kept going two nights in a row till five or six o'clock in the morning, at which time I was asleep in bed. So the reason we're not in the room is because our mandate is limited to legal advice. We have 
82 countries entitled to our services. They have very different views on some of the negotiating and policy aspects of the issues that are discussed at MC12. And we need to be able to assure them that they can come to us for neutral, expert, legal advice on those issues and that we don't have a particular axe to grind or a particular policy position. So our rule is to stay in our offices and be available around the clock when governments or negotiating delegations have specific legal questions about some of the texts that are being negotiated. You're not in the room, you're waiting by the phone, but you're ready and able to, to answer any and all legal questions that they could throw in your way. Well, one of the deliverables, deliverables is, is WTO speak, that came out of the ministerial meeting was an agreement on fishery subsidies. This was pretty important, at least politically. Getting a deal on fishery subsidies had been asked of the WTO as part of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to help tackle the global problem of overfishing. And in Geneva last month, WTO members finally agreed to at least a starter agreement on how to limit subsidies in the fishery sector. We don't need to get into the complex details of that agreement here, but can you tell us a little bit about what role the advisory center might play in those negotiations specifically, you know, leading up to and ultimately down to the wire in MC12? Well, over the past couple of years, we've received dozens of questions as the proposed legal texts have evolved about how the proposals would change the existing WTO rules, how they interact with the existing WTO subsidy rules, what would be the additional burdens that WTO members would be taking on. One example I would give is there's a provision in the agreement to provide that any decisions in WTO panels or any discussions in the WTO about issues relating to fisheries subsidies and which boats are fishing where and whose economic zone they're fishing in, that all those kinds of issues should have no effect on any territorial disputes between two WTO members that might be taking place in another forum, such as the International Court of Justice. Here, two countries may have a very contentious but but very separate legal dispute about territorial waters, maybe in the South China Sea or, or the Caribbean or, or somewhere else around the world. And that has the potential to get litigated at the International Court of Justice. For WTO purposes, they don't care. All they care about are the fish and the subsidies. And in order to get a deal there, they had to make it clear that any rulings or conversations about territorial waters that might come up in the WTO context would not spill over and and have any other implications for the territorial disputes that may be proceeding elsewhere. As we often conclude here on Trade Talks, international law is complicated. Okay, to wrap this up, my, my last question for you is, is going to go back to the importance of a, a, a functioning dispute settlement system. To me, one of the potential highlights of the ministerial, the, the MC12 meeting of the WTO in Geneva in June, 
was buried in the outcomes document, specifically in paragraph four. And in there they said, quote, the members commit to conduct discussions with the view of having a fully and well-functioning dispute settlement system accessible to all members by 2024, end quote. So by two years from now, 2024, they want to have a, a, a fully and well-functioning dispute settlement system. To go back to developing countries, why is this a priority for members of, of the advisory center? What's at risk if the WTO doesn't achieve a fully and well-functioning dispute settlement system by 2024? Well, arguably, if you have rules, but no way to resolve disputes about those rules or no way to enforce those rules, the rules themselves are undermined. And this is particularly important to poor developing countries with which we work because they don't have the power to enforce the rules except through a multilateral system of dispute settlement. I think the importance of the rules and the dispute settlement system to the countries with which we work was shown last year when the WTO dispute settlement body marked the occasion of the ACWL's 20th anniversary. And 37 WTO members spoke up to talk about the importance of the dispute settlement system and the role of the ACWL in enabling them to participate in the system. And I noted recently in a recent speech, the U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Catherine Tai, when talking about getting the WTO dispute settlement system going again, expressly mentioned the question of access of developing countries to the system. And of course, that's exactly where the ACWL comes in, in order to ensure that the system is acceptable and is usable by the poorer countries. My final takeaway would be to agree with all that. Getting a fair and equitable trading system and dispute settlement system is hard work. For many countries, and many poorer and smaller countries in particular, with the help of the advisory center, the WTO had done a pretty amazing job. That is something we don't want to lose because of the appellate body crisis. At the same time, I, I do also think there are benefits to making the dispute settlement system a, a bit easier to utilize making the process go a bit quicker, and making it perhaps a little more accessible and transparent and a little less legalistic. But even that could be win-win. It's something, Niall, that, that might make your job against those teams and teams of private sector lawyers with their billable hours on the other side of the table from you. Maybe that also makes your job someday a little easier. If those WTO legal decisions were shorter, I know that would make my life easier too. Thanks, Niall. Thanks for having me, Chad. It's been a pleasure. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Niall Marr at the Advisory Center on WTO Law in Geneva. As always, a big thank you to Colin Warren, our audio guy. And now that Trade Talks is back, please help us let everyone know about the podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and help us share the episode on social media. You can follow us on Twitter. We're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. 
And if anyone mentions this on Twitter, I will restore the really, really bad double underscore joke at least once.